Father God, thank you that you are good when everything else does not appear to be looking good, and even when everything else is not good, that you are good. Lord, show us something of your goodness today, and may what we learn be something that uh, will be useful, not only for ourselves and drawing us closer in belief to you, but Father, also uh, as we seek to be witnesses for your kingdom and for your glory and for your soon return, may we be helpful to others. Uh, we ask this in the name of Jesus, and we ask especially that your presence would be here with us now and that you'd be the teacher, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So we've looked throughout the week at several different topics. Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome. We've looked at several different topics. Um, are faith and reason necessarily enemies? Uh, a lot of people nowadays would like to say so, um, and sometimes we're, we'd be inclined to believe so. Faith and science, are they necessarily enemies? Some people um, uh, often say that faith is an enemy of science, that faith hinders the advance of science. Uh, and science has closed the gaps that we used to fill in with God, and now we know everything, and we no longer have need of religion. Yesterday we talked about um, the claims of Christianity historically. We evaluated the historical documents on which uh, the gospel message is based, uh, specifically in the New Testament, um, and we uh, discussed how those are, in fact, contrary to what many would say, uh, a very uh, historically viable source of information, um, some of the best classically attested literature that's come down to us from the ancient age. Um, and today we are going to be looking at probably what I think is just about the hardest question of them all. Um, question for you. Raise your hand if you have a question that you would like to ask God. Some people do, some people don't. Okay, okay. I, I know I have, I have many questions I'd like to ask God. Um, I want you to pause for a moment. You don't have to, I'm not going to ask any of you to share, but take maybe a few seconds and think maybe about what that question would be. If you could ask God a question. Without, without sharing the details, I'm kind of curious, how many of you, your question would have something to do with some sort of suffering or tragedy some unexplainable thing that happened, whether to you or to someone else. Um, I want to make, I don't want to at all be cavalier about this topic. I don't want to, I want to step as lightly as I can while stepping as truthfully as I can. Does that make sense? I, I understand that there are people in this room, including um, my own family and family friends, and probably all of us who at some way, at some point in time, have suffered very deeply. And the last thing I would want to do was just assume that with a broad stroke of a brush, we can just say, rah, 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 not a big problem. Oh, we can answer that really easily. No, it's a hard thing. It's a difficult question. I would, I would even venture to argue that for a lot of people and for a lot of skeptics and atheists, that this is one of the main um, objections, maybe even more than science and reason and other arguments. How could God allow X, Y, Z? Um, <clears throat> oh, come on. There we go. Epicurus put it, uh, phrased this argument famously a uh, long, 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 long time ago. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. 
Is he able, but not willing? Well, then he's malevolent. He's evil. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh the evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So kind of sometimes this has been called the trilemma. If God is all good, all powerful, and all wise and all knowing, how is it possible that we have the reality of evil and suffering in this world? Um, yeah, since there is suffering in the world, there cannot be an all-loving, all-wise, all-powerful God. This is probably the more modern phrasing that people uh, would make of this. And I want to remind you that this is a Christian apologetics seminar, which means that we are trying to prepare ourselves not to corner people into belief, not to bombard people with facts and think that we can intimidate people into faith and into the kingdom of God. You can't intimidate people into a relationship, and that's actually going to be a big part of the conversation today. You cannot intimidate people into a relationship. But I think it's important that we address these questions and be prepared, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, to give an answer, an apologia, for the hope that is in us, but to do it with respect and with kindness, always showing a Christian spirit. So, this being the accusation, one of the biggest accusations, probably one of the most difficult accusations to ever, and have you ever asked this question in some form? Have, you, have any of you ever had somebody ask you this question in some form? This is a tough one. So, I'm just going to tell you, I'm a teacher, as I already said, and this specific presentation has been birthed out of um, a few years of interactions with students and kind of being forced into positions to have to... Being a Bible teacher, it turns out teenagers come to you with questions when stuff happens, and all of a sudden you become a resource person, or you're kind of forced into being a resource person. You're like, um, yeah, okay. And I've sat in classrooms like this with 30 waiting, expectant eyes waiting for you know, the short answer to this before. And it's a terrifying thing. Hopefully, as we move through this, this can become a little bit less terrifying. So, famous atheist Bertrand Russell um, kind of summed it up really briefly, no one can sit at the bedside of a dying child and still believe in God. We can move on to Sam Harris, who's probably actually uh, in the world of the modern new atheists, as they're called. He's considered one of, I believe he's considered one of the four uh, horsemen of new atheism. Um, somewhere in the world, a man has abducted a little girl. Soon he will rape, torture, and kill her. If an atrocity of this kind is not occurring at precisely this moment, it will happen in a few hours or days at most. This girl's parents believe at this very moment that an all-powerful and all-loving God is watching over them and their family. Are they right to believe this? Is, this? is it good that they believe this? No. And I think this next line is actually quite interesting because... Um, rather, you know, a lot of times atheism likes to try to say that the reasons against God are largely based on science, but I think it's really interesting that Sam Harris, of all people, says here, the entirety of atheism is contained in this response. <clears throat> Which seems to be suggesting that one of the largest, if not the pinnacle, strongest argument that the atheist is trying to use is the argument of suffering saying, therefore, it could not be logically compatible that there could be an all-powerful, all-loving, all-good God, and at the same time, suffering. Are we on board so far? We know what's going on. Thumbs up? Thumbs up? Okay, here we go. Um, so, I'm, we're going to break this down, and we're going to look basically at kind of three possible worldviews. I'm going to kind of argue that you could probably fit almost any worldview. By the way, a worldview is a way through which we see the world. Think about a pair of glasses, right? You put on a pair of, like, you know those, like, yellow sunglasses? that were like hip in the early 2000s and in the 90s. And all of a sudden you see the whole world and it looks like what? 
yellow. Or you put on, you know, you put on a pair of dark blue sunglasses and all of a sudden the whole world looks blue. Okay, so I'm going to argue that kind of from a religious standpoint or an a-religious standpoint that there's basically, we can, we can divide all the worldviews of the world kind of into three categories. We have naturalism, which says that there is just the universe. There's no, there's no transcendent, there's just the material. Everything that we see is all that is. There's only the universe. We have uh, theism, which says there is God and the universe, theism being belief in God. And God is distinct from the universe, the creator of the universe. And then we have pantheism, which says that God is the universe. All right? Does that make sense? I'll explain this one here uh, really briefly here in a moment, because this one can sometimes get a little bit confusing. Probably underneath this, we could fit a lot of major world religions and a lot of minor world religions as well. Hi. So what I want to try to suggest before we even get into addressing evil from a Christian standpoint, I think it's important to note that even though Christians will often sometimes receive a lot of flack for the you believe in God, but, you, but there's evil, what's going on? I think it's important to note how these other alternative worldviews respond to the issue of evil as well. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're going to look at that. <clears throat> Naturalism and suffering. Well, if all there is is nature, if there's no transcendent, if there's no uh, objective morality, if there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell, then really nature is kind of all that there is. And if we're, we are kind of sort of the result of, you know, death is an integral part of natural evolutionary processes. And if that's true, then death has actually been in some ways a vehicle for good. Because how a lot of beings got here was the process of natural selection and all that type of thing. So what we have then is that it's not necessarily good, it's not necessarily bad, it just kind of is. The only solution, and it's not really a solution, um, is to basically ignore it. Get over it and just make the best of the time that you have. Christopher Hitchens, has anybody ever heard of Christopher Hitchens before? Another uh, famous atheist, he died probably almost seven or eight years ago now. Uh, I believe it was cancer, and in uh, the some of the, like one of the final years when he was in the midst of the of chemotherapy, he wrote this in an article. He says, "I'm here as a product of process evolution. This is an example of this view towards suffering. I'm here as a product of process of evolution, which doesn't make very many exceptions, and which rates life relatively cheaply. To be relatively healthy at 62 is to be dealt a pretty good hand by the cosmos, which doesn't know I'm here and won't notice when I'm gone." It's a very, it's a very impersonal uh, take on the reality of suffering. And yet the very interesting thing is that you will probably find very few people who, across the world who would affirm that suffering is not real and is not in somehow some type of way wrong. So I think that um, an interesting point, even though naturalists like to try to file a complaint against uh, theism, because of the existence of suffering, naturalism did not necessarily offer any sort of a better solution to the same problem. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more. Pantheism. Um, let me try to sum it up here briefly. Uh, I want a marker here. How many people have heard this before? All Atman is Brahman. Has anybody heard that before? All Atman is Brahman. 
Okay, if, you were to, if we were to basically organize, kind of take many uh, and most of the Eastern religions of the world, uh, they're largely pantheistic, and it hinges kind of around this kind of concept here. Atman, uh, let's consider it this way. Uh, let's say that Atman is the distinct things. Like, this is a desk, and I'm not that desk. I'm Jordan, right? And you're Levi, and you're Mrs. Heslop, and you're Trevor, and you're Mr. House, and you're, you know, does that make sense? We see, we see things as distinct from each other, um, and that would be the Atman. But the underlying belief of pantheism is that Brahman is all reality. In other words, it only is an illusion that I am different than that desk. It's only an illusion that I'm a different person than you. Because the same life force is in everything. This is kind of the, this is the idea in uh, Eastern religions. The, the only problem with that is then... <coughs> then suffering itself cannot be a distinction other than the self. It must be an illusion. Does that follow? And sometimes people say, well, there's forces of good and there's forces of evil, but if there is, in fact, no true distinctions and everything is actually one, then there's not actually not a distinction between good and evil. Does that make sense? Is that quite interesting? So, so the, 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 issue, the issue that you arise in here is in the other worldview option, you also are faced with a situation where you have to just say, well, then it just must not be real. But try to tell that to a person who is in the middle of their suffering. That's no, just an illusion. And in fact, the answer to it is enlightenment. Uh, and there's various ways to go about that, whether it's trying to achieve moksha or whether it's trying to achieve uh, nirvana. Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome. Hello. <laughs> so the cure is basically to become enlightened, which basically means to go about through, whether it means uh, doing certain types of prayers, certain types of meditations that bring me to the point, that bring you to the point that we realize that you're actually just one with the universe and there's no such thing as distinction and all the suffering is really an illusion. This is very famously um, <clears throat> kind of codified in the first three of the four noble truths in Buddhism. Uh, Buddha, who uh, was a popular adherent to this kind of ideology. Life is full of suffering. Well, we agree with that as Christians. We are surrounded by suffering in life. It's a reality. But this is where I think it takes a different direction. Suffering is caused by attachment and desire. The fact that we get attached to things, the fact that we see things and people as others, um, <clears throat> and we have illegitimate desires, but also this is always in reference to legitimate desires as well, the desire to find love and meaningful companionship and friendships and relationships. I'm not necessarily prepared to say that those are illegitimate desires to want to love a person, to want to love my dog, to want to love my wife, who will be here in a few minutes, and I'm so excited. <clears throat> and so the, the third of the noble truths is, well, then the way to overcome is to basically detach. Is to detach. So... <clears throat> Here's, here's the thing. <laughs> this is how it adds up. Naturalism, in terms of human suffering, naturalism says, well, it's not right because we don't like it. We don't, you know, maybe it would be better to say not preferential because there's no true right, there's no true wrong, it just is. It's not right, but it's not wrong. Naturalism doesn't stand on any grounds to necessarily say, because here's the thing, if death has been the vehicle of advancing life forms, natural selection, then how can we necessarily say that how, why should I be revolted when I suffer? That's just what happens. It's not good. It's not bad. Pantheism says, well, suffering isn't real. Theism is the only worldview that can affirm that it's not right. Which I think is very interesting 
because that resonates deeply with what we believe and what we sense when we're standing at a family member's graveside, when we get a phone call about something terrible that's happened, there's something, you know, not only do we say it feels terrible, but anyone who's ever been through an experience like that often knows that the, that the feeling is it doesn't feel right. Does that make sense? Does that jive with our, with our, with our experience, with our human experience? Okay. <clears throat> so, um, Though we could put theism in a corner and try to say, well, you have, you know, theism as a worldview has to really make sense of suffering, and I think we have a logistic case that we can do that. I think it's important to note that where else are you going to go? Does that make sense? Where else are you going to go? Because if, on, on one option, well, it's, it, it doesn't really matter. It's not good. It's not bad. And another option, well, it's not really real. So either way, we have to deal with um, suffering. Alvin Plantinga, probably one of the most famous Christian philosophers of our day and age, um, <clears throat> says this way, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing, then you have a powerful argument for the existence of God. In short, the problem of tragedy, suffering, and injustice is a problem for everyone. It is at least as big a problem for non-belief in God as for belief. <clears throat> So, yes, there is a problem of evil. If God is good, why is there suffering? But I think we also need to note that our other, probably most popular option, at least in the, in the cultural world that we live in here in the West of naturalism, there's a problem of good. If the universe is just material, why do we sense objective good? Why are there things that we sense to be good? And not just because we prefer them, but like, it's good to be nice to a kid. It's good to help an old lady. It's and by con yeah. Some things are beautiful. Why are they? Why are they beautiful? Exactly. What what's the objective? What's the objective criteria or data by which we evaluate something to be that? Right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> ultimately, I think uh, what what uh, naturalism does is it kind of uh, neuters or neuters a worldview of having any version of hope. And that's the hardest part. You hear. You live, you die, tomorrow you're gone, and there's nothing, and so you might as well eat and drink for tomorrow you die, right? That's all there is. You get one go around, and that's it. Now, that doesn't speak very deeply to our hearts. Now, right away, a lot of times, probably the response you will get will be, hold up, that's an appeal to emotion. That's not a logical argument. That's unfair. Hi. That's not a fair, that's not a fair argument um, to, to appeal to emotion because that's not, that's not working with the facts. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but I think it is important to note that a lot of objections to the existence of God because of evil are also emotional arguments. And I, I think uh, if we give this too much ground that there becomes a double standard that we should um, be willing to note. Is that a hand? I mean, you might get to some point, but you have to get it to some point where which worldview is livable. Yes. Absolutely. Which of these, which of these uh, can logically cohere and add up, and which of these in practical experience can actually work, and which seems to be absolute nonsense? I just don't believe that my suffering is just an illusion. I don't think it's just fake. I don't think the way to fix it is to just detach from everything and everyone in the whole world, right? I, I don't believe that it's true that when a tragedy happens, it's just, man, eh, it's just what it is. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just meh. It was just a roll of the dice. I don't believe that's the case, which to, for me, that forces me into the third option. Then we, can we, from this, 
while understanding that the problem of evil is difficult, is there at least reasonable evidence for the existence of an all-loving and a powerful God despite the existence of evil? Now, whoop. <laughs> Have you ever felt like this person? <laughs> Trying to balance your life between your head and your heart? You ever been there? <clears throat> Something that I... The, um, I think is important to clarify when we look at this, is that when we address this discussion, there is a head answer and there is a hard answer. We're going to look at both of these. And if through a lot of the duration of this earlier part, you're like, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. And, and I probably actually need to clarify right now. Um, I don't know, I, I know quite a lot of you, but I don't know all your stories and I don't know where you've been. And I, once again, don't want to be cavalier with the topic of suffering. <clears throat> but I think it is important, as we're seeking and preparing to give answers to people uh, for why there can be a good God, despite suffering, that we're willing to look at both sides of this. And I do think we need to start here. And if we can find a sound basis here, I think it's safe that we can then move on to here. Does that make sense? Okay, there, I think there's two components. Now, generally speaking, I think when somebody, and we should learn to differentiate as Christians, when somebody says, oh, why God? There couldn't be a God because of my suffering, that we learn to discern what approach to take in that moment. Oh, well, here are some logical equations for you. Well, that might not be, that might not fit the bill in the moment. Does that make sense? I think a lot of people are actually reaching out for this um, when they're, complaining on, when, I don't want to say complaining, but when they're suffering on this side too, okay? So let's, uh, <clears throat> let's look at these. The logic of love and free will, it goes like this. In fact, does somebody have a Bible? Pull out 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. If you could read that for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Hmm? Oh, say it again. Okay, he who loveth not, he who does not love does not know God because God is... Love. And if you were to fast forward to verse 16 of the same chapter, you'd find once again that it says God is love. Not loving, but love. It's an essential character. It's the essential fundamental um, principle of his nature. I mean, God is just. God is fair. God is merciful. But God is also love, right? Okay, so here we go. First John 4, 16. Uh, now, something that is tantamount and of absolute importance to love is for what to be involved? Freedom. Some of you have heard this before. Love requires freedom. I don't think that you can make much of a case otherwise. I got some friends in here. You're dating in a, in a wonderful and, and, uh, and a loving dating relationship, a courting relationship. Something tells me, Clayton, that um, <clears throat> Melody likes you not because you've tied her up and you've given her death threats if she doesn't. Something tells me that there's some, there's some of that going on, right? Right? In fact, the only way that you can successfully achieve the level of loving relationship that is optimal is if freedom is automatically woven into the equation, right? But what's the thing about freedom? You have to make a choice. There's a choice involved, and a choice for one thing might by uh, default mean a choice not for another, right? It's a risk. It's a risk. Freedom involves risk. Freedom involves risk. Try to invent freedom that doesn't involve risk, and all you've done is tried to redefine the word freedom. Right? So here's the thing that follows. Real love hinges on freedom that makes evil 
possible. And we don't like to think about that. And sometimes we don't like to face that. But true freedom hinges on, or true love hinges on freedom that by definition must make evil possible. All right? So once again, we're not the hard answer. We're in the head answer. So you probably don't feel like butterflies. Oh, that fixes it. No, it's probably not how it's going, right? Um, but I think this is a good point. And I think all we need to do is look at this picture right here. Yeah. What a romantic day. For those listening on the audio recording of this, we have a picture of a bride and a groom and a happy father with a shotgun. There we go. We just, we just broke the third barrier. I want to ask you a question. Which person in this picture would you not want to be? The groom. But let's push this even further. Who would you also not want to be? Okay, the guy holding the gun? The bride. Why? Ooh, she loves them both. That's painful. Uh, because love is an illusion. Explain that. Love is an illusion. It's not real. And she doesn't want to be the recipient of a fake love. Mm -hmm. and, girls don't like that. and girls probably don't like that either. Right, right. <laughs> Does God want to be the recipient of fake love? Not at all. So when you're dealing with love, you have to weave freedom into the equation. But freedom, by definition, makes possible... Uh, freedom to choose for or freedom to choose against, right? Now, we have, we have an in-house advantage uh, kind of as Seventh-day Adventists to understand the blessing of understanding the great controversy motif, understanding what's happening behind the scenes from Isaiah 14, Ezekiel uh, 28, uh, Revelation 12. We understand that there was war in heaven. We understand that a freely created being used his freedom for a purpose for which the freedom was not created and has wreaked havoc not only on the perfect unity of heaven, but has spread that to earth, right? We have that understanding. Um, <clears throat> I, think, I think this freedom piece is the important thing that we have to constantly come back to in this argument because I think it is the most vital part. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God's designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily, united to him and to each other. And for that, they must be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. Yes. Now here's the thing. When, you know, in, in our darkest times when we are crying out as people for, you know, uh, against the suffering that we experience, what we are really asking uh, is not for life necessarily to be over, but we're wishing that we instead had the best, the best, most optimal circumstances as opposed to the worst, right? But the same, uh, the same door that leads to the best possible outcome also makes possible the worst possible outcome. Right? That's an, I think that's a fair logical point that would add up. So, and that's kind of the point that Lewis is making here. <clears throat> what could God have done? In terms of how God created, maybe take a moment and discuss with each other. What do you think? How could God have created 
to avert this crisis? Could he have? How should have he created with the balance of free will or not free will? Take a moment. Discuss for 30 seconds or so. <clears throat> so, so what are some thoughts? What are some ideas that are manifesting in your, in your conversations? What could God have done? What? Okay, he could have not created. Of course, we wouldn't be here then to, to, to vote that as an option. <laughs> yeah. In the beginning, we were created to, because it's determined to be good. Older the discussion of the matter. Okay, all right. So your initial thing, well, he could have not created. That's certainly one option that people often say. But, okay. but what he could have Well, I guess maybe I'm, I may, I'm responding to something that's not actually specifically that question. Okay. Anyone operating with freedom could have been the vehicle for that, yeah. is your point. Okay. Yeah. Good point. Yes. I wanted to piggyback off of that. People ask why God created Lucifer, and I think it could have been anybody. That's what I can say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, then I had another thought here. Um, I think <clears> that <throat> suffering for me is not an argument or a proof against the existence of God as much as it is an argument and proof of the existence of sin. Okay. And a lot, some people, to stretch that idea, some people have even argued that suffering is not only not an argument against the existence of a loving God, but it's actually a very strong evidence for the existence of a loving God. Yeah. Because he could have only created programmed robots who only behave in a certain way, but the very fact that we operate with free will illustrates the nature of his love. And what, what if the only consequence of sin was death without suffering in between? Interesting thought. Any other, any other, yeah. <clears throat> another, another thing that God could have done is just, as soon as evil pops up, just restarts the universe. Okay, lightning. <laughs> Whole death. thing, right? Okay, what are the ramifications of that? That's a huge one. Okay, I have students so often, so um, the, 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 what was just said was, even if God, here's the thing, some people say, well, God could have lightning the whole, you know, as soon as sin sprang its ugly head, God could have just lightning bolted the whole situation and erased the whole thing to kingdom come. And people say, oh, but then, you know, the angels and the heavenly beings and us as humans would only serve God out of fear, not by true love. And I think that's a good response. But then people say, but God could reprogram everybody's minds so they wouldn't even know it ever happened. But the one, as, as you rightly pointed out, Tom, the one fundamental error with that logic is that there would still be one individual who would know that. God himself. God himself would still know it. So you're still, you want to add on to that? Yeah. So then the question that, that all want to know, who is God and what is he like? Okay. Fundamentally changes who God is. Uh-huh. And we're going to get to that. <laughs> awesome. Okay, the options as have been um, presented by a lot of people throughout time are, as you pointed out, he could have just not created. Um, I happen to... Um, I know that I'm young and I know that I probably have way more suffering ahead of me than behind me. But I know that I think there's a lot of joy to be had in life. There's a lot of joy to be had in loving people and finding companionship and uh, drinking good juice and eating good peaches and having a good dog and, <laughs> and having the hope of eternity with Jesus. I think that's good. So I, I, I'm a fan of life. Um, he could have created morally determined beings. That is to say, 
Um, <clears throat> you're pre-programmed to never sin. But that goes back to the original uh, argument that we were making earlier, but then God would be compromising the value of free will and love could not be. People, and people would say, well, you could give maybe partial freedom, but partial not freedom. Well, then you have partial love. Then you have partial love. Or God could have created morally free beings. And maybe, maybe just to really help out the situation, he could have put them in a perfect situation. <laughs> maybe like a beautiful garden where everything was good. Maybe that would have been, that would have, if that would have happened, then this wouldn't have happened. Then we wouldn't have fallen into sin, right? Well, anyways. The famous, uh, famous German philosopher, uh, philosopher said, we live in the best of all possible worlds. Um, if you're to look at what God could have done with a series of options, we do live in the best possible of all worlds. I think, I think probably not just earth itself, but I think that statement is referring to in terms of how God, how God navigated free will versus not free will. We have the best possible outcome for loving relationships. Yeah. But yeah, there's probably uh, worlds that are way prettier than this one. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be cool. I mean, wait, it'll be cool. Why couldn't he just send Satan here and put us on another planet somewhere? It's a good question. It's a good question. Oh, we got an answer here. We could, we, could, we could discuss this to kingdom come. Okay. All right, this is what we'll do. Uh, hopefully we'll have time to come to it. Uh, if we finish on time, we'll hopefully have a little bit of time left over for questions. And tomorrow's session, uh, please come. Anthony and I are going to be kind of dealing with, talking with uh, questions. How do we a- approach people who have questions? And then how do we, um, I think maybe another good point of discussion could be how, how do we live with questions when we still have questions? How do we live a life of faith still having questions? But then we're also going to just do a question and answer, um, and we could discuss some things like that. Okay, well, objections are going to be raised to this. Um, We're going to go through a series of objections. If God is all-powerful, he could give freedom that doesn't result in sin. Okay, if he's all, people say, well, if he's all-powerful, then he can give the type, he can invent a type of freedom that doesn't result in sin. Well, that's kind of like this. <laughs> right? The dice is tied to the person's hand, and you might go through the motions of pretending like you're rolling a dice, or, but it's determined. It's not really rolling a dice. Or the concept of the square circle. The concept of the square circle. You heard that before? Well, if God is so powerful, could God, could God create a square circle? <clears throat> Without wanting to get into all the technicalities, some people say, yes, God can do absolutely anything, but really what you're saying, I mean, that, that's, that's, uh, that statement has no meaning. It's, an, it's a logical fallacy that has no meaning. It's a thing that cancels itself out. Um, one plus one is three. Now, just so happens we have a PhD mathematician in the room, and I'm sure he, and we also have a math teacher in the room, my high school math teacher, and I'm sure that some person has found some sort of way. In fact, when I looked up this picture, it was like one plus one equals three, proof, and there was this long equation. I'm like, oh, no. So there's probably somebody in here who has a theory for why and how 1 plus 1 equals 3. But in the standard use that we generally uh, know and understand of these terms, outside of monkeying with definitions and monkeying with what 1 means and monkeying with what uh, the addition symbol means and what the equal symbol means, right, this is not a nonsensical statement, right? Does that make sense? Waiting for a mathematician to nod and give me the go-ahead. Okay, thank you. <laughs> verified, verified. Mrs. Mrs. H, verified? Okay, all right, good. <clears throat> that would be illogical. So, t- 
to, um, to say that God could give freedom that doesn't result in certain things is actually to not really give freedom. Unless, unless you're redefining what freedom means to take away from the essential definition of what freedom means. Another objection. Well, we don't actually have free will. Well, I think, um, and some people often will like to say this, well, how, we don't actually have free will. We are ma- merely, as some people say, dancing to the tune of our DNA. Well, that's assuming, um, that's assuming a naturalist worldview, which is a whole other argument <laughs> all on itself. But scientifically, how could you ever prove or demonstrate that? Philosophically, how could you ever prove and demonstrate that? Um, and I think the, the be- one of the best examples is I have a computer, and what type of things are put out by my computer? What type of output goes in? Whatever I put into it. And even if I was to program a computer to add, you know, my computer doesn't reason. Am I a computer? Or am I a man? My computer doesn't reason um, of whether or not it's the best computer. It doesn't ask itself philosophical questions. And even if it did, it would only be because there was someone who had programmed it to ask those types of questions. Right? So um, I think scientifically and philosophically, you couldn't reason about this issue if, there, uh, if we didn't have free will. Uh, theologically, I don't think you could verify it. Second Peter 3.9. <laughs> the Lord desires no one to die, but he wishes for all people to come to repentance. Ezekiel 33.11. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I wish that all people would come to repentance. Here's the thing. If God could have his way, if God had his way, we'd all still be in a garden in perfection. We wouldn't be experiencing this in the first place. So I think theologically that would be a hard point to make that we don't have free will um, because that would mean God would override free will to create evil and he confesses in scripture in many places that evil is not at all his desire. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9. Yeah. And practically you couldn't live it. And this goes down to the livable point that my brother Tom was making earlier. Uh, imagine a world where, you know, if I walked up to, if I walk up to you, Isaiah, uh, and we were, in, we were downtown Grand Rapids, and I just made a big fist and I just punched you. And there happens to be a police officer right there. And he, well, what are you doing? He pulls me aside and says, officer, officer, hold up. You got this all wrong. You see... I am a predetermined being, and I don't make my own decisions. I was programmed to do this. I actually didn't choose this. Well, you would have a really hard time in any court of law and in any realistic human situation of ever making a case that there isn't some level of free will optioning in, in, in humanity. Does that make sense? So it's not, it's not a practical solution. It's not a practical answer. And frankly, I, I don't think very many of us would actually maybe believe this. I think you'd have a lot of arguments against it. Another objection, if God knew how things would end up, he should not have created individuals that he knew would sin. This goes back to, well, why did he create Lucifer? Which I think we've already addressed some interesting parts of that. Some people say, well, why did he create, you know, he could have just not created Eve. He could have created Yvette, right? (laughs) The other option, who God would know wouldn't sin. There we go, okay. Well, um, first of all, we are not at the end. If God knew how things would end up. We're not at the end. More of this in a moment. I think this is a huge argument, um, a a, a very powerful uh, piece that is part of this. We're not at the end yet. But also, once again, this compromises freedom because God, in his wisdom, looked down through the annals of time and knew which ones would choose this, and he refused to make certain people that would choose this, then he has, in a sense, stacked the deck. 
He's in a sense stacked the deck. So we have a compromise of his ethics once again. <clears throat> are we good so far? Clayton, are we all right, right so far? You're studying this, like, okay, you jump in if you need to raise your hand, and okay. <laughs> Another objection, if God is all-powerful, he should kill Satan. This is the one that we talked about already, and I think we already did a good job of addressing this. Well, uh, first of all, anybody, how many people are familiar with the idea that an idea doesn't die as easily as a person? In fact, oftentimes, if you kill the person, you proliferate the idea, right? A lot of times, if you kill it, you, you just create a martyr. Now, I'm speaking in-house at a Seventh-day Adventist camp meeting with the background knowledge that we have of the great controversy and of, the, you know, of Lucifer's claims against God and his rebellion against God. And once again, as we already said, for God to just nuke the whole situation, well, who's to say that the unfallen beings of the universe wouldn't look at that and say, oh my goodness, it's really true. It's really true. He's a tyrant. Um, <clears throat> secondly, as we already know, God doesn't desire worship out of fear. This goes back to the freedom issue again, right? This, you see how this constantly goes back to the, to the logic of love? Love requires freedom, and freedom involves risk. And then finally, uh, he eventually will. God's all-powerful. He, he should just kill Satan. We know that there is going to come a time that this is going to happen. Um, I, you know, a popular saying, especially in an era of social justice, people often say, justice delayed is justice denied. Has anyone heard that before? And I think uh, if we have the perspective that this life, these short 20, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years is all that we get, uh, then maybe there is a, a little bit of impetus, impetus for that statement to be true. But if, in fact, there is more that goes beyond just this life, then I think that we can actually assert that justice delayed is not justice denied. Yes? And to, to say that there's no reason that God should allow suffering is to, in a sense, assume more knowledge than, or the knowledge that God has, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if the, and I think that's a point that we, I have in here that we're going to come to. If, if I don't see any reason for it, if I don't see any, uh, any reason for why it's happening, then obviously there couldn't be any reason for why it's happening. That's making, the, that's making the assumption to see things from God's prerogative, uh, which by definition, if he does exist, and we're working from within the theistic framework as if he does, trying to explain it from that framework, if God does exist, then by definition, he is greater and wiser than us. Your hand was up, Long sir. Long-suffering is good, though. What? Long-suffering is good, according to the book. Okay, says the man on the bench press, right? Oh, oh. Right. Well, most people that are suffering probably wouldn't embrace that, that mentality, but... Yeah. To have someone who truly has faith to know that um, that's just like it's okay to feel brokenness, shame, humiliation. And, and I think that's, that's a good point. And oftentimes people like to raise the distinction between moral evil and natural evil. We talk about moral evil. That's if I steal from somebody, I rob from somebody, I murder somebody. Um, you know, I commit adultery, whereas natural evil is, is disease, as a tornado, as an earthquake, or just some of the, the things that have come in the world. And once again, I think our Adventist perspective of the great controversy gives us a deeper look into the things that a lot of Christian philosophers really struggle with natural evil. We say, well, we can understand why there's moral evil because people have chosen evil, but why the tornadoes, why the earthquakes? Well, I think that we have a special bird's eye view into why things like that are happening. And the exciting bit is we have a really exciting understanding of the obsolescence and eventual end of those things, which is pretty cool. Okay, um, 
We've been talking about it a little bit, but the Seventh-day Adventist advantage that we have. Don't you love it? Keep calm and be a Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah, there we go. Uh, we, have, we have a special purview, I think, into this, into this battle that is going on that helps us understand. Uh, I was reading a Christian philosopher just this morning, and he was wrestling with the issue, uh, the issue of like killing Satan. Why hasn't God just killed Satan? Why hasn't that happened yet? And I think we have an understanding that there is a certain amount of evil that God is, uh, for a greater good, allowing to play out in a limited sphere so that for the unlimited sphere, it will be forever gone, Right? And that's kind of the, the vantage point that we're working with. Also, hey, our truth about death. Um, <clears throat> I forget her name. I was reading in a book by Timothy Keller just two days ago. But there was a, 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 famous, a famous female atheist who was writing. And one of her largest complaints in this argument uh, of the problem of pain was that death uh, to go and to go to die and immediately to go to heaven and watch your loved ones suffer is is a, tr a cruel and barbarous torture. Why would God inflict that on people? Well, we happen to know if we open our Bibles as Seventh Day Adventists that the truth about death actually gives us a really beautiful picture into God being merciful, right? My my grandmother who died in a car accident years ago is not somewhere up in heaven watching as my family does or does not suffer or makes foolish decisions. Right? There's, there's a piece of the goodness of God in that. And then um, here's a really difficult one. A huge claim that skeptics will often make against Christian belief is they'll say, yeah, you believe, okay, you know, you believe that God is going to somehow take care of the problem of evil, but you believe that God is going to perpetuate suffering for all eternity. Because if people are going to be eternally burning, then that means that there is no true end to suffering. But as Seventh-day Adventists, as, I don't even have to say as Seventh-day Adventists, I can just say as people who would open up the Bible and study it for what it has to say for itself, what you see is the truth about hell teaches that no, there is in fact an end to suffering. It is an intruder. It's not forever. Anybody want to jump in any of this? No? All right. We're doing all right. And then finally, um, we have a high view of freedom of the will. Rather than believing that God created some people to be eternally destroyed and God created some people to just be elect and chosen, uh, Revelation 22.11. Will somebody read that for me? Revelation 22.11. It's great stuff. Oh, you already did the last one. You're taking them up. I'm just kidding. No, that's great. No, that's, that's totally the right one, though. You got it. Somebody have it? Okay, can you read it for us? He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let it be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Okay. What word is repeating? Still. Still. And also, let. What does this denote? What does let denote? Freedom. Allow. Permit. Permit it to be so. God had his way, everyone would be saved. <laughs> it's sad that everyone is going to get their own way except God when you think about it a few things to consider and we talked about it already Tom brought it up our limited perspective you know 1 Corinthians tells us that currently we see in a mirror dimly we don't see everything as it fully is we're working from a limited human vantage point uh, Isaiah 55 tells us uh, that for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There are things definitionally in being God. There are attributes of being God that make him wiser. <laughs> 
the Bible, if the God of the Bible exists, he is by definition wiser than us. As Timothy Keller said, if you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. <clears throat> Another one that I use often in the classroom that I think is, it's, it might seem kind of silly, but I think it's a really good illustration. Um, how many of you have ever read a book that in the middle of the book, the book was not going your way? Like, this character just can't get out of this dark and creepy forest, right? Or this person just can't get their life together, right? If you've ever read any sort of a story where it's, you know, I mean, that's just how storybooks go. But what, what reasonable person would evaluate the goodness of the story or the goodness of the author in the middle of the book? What person would just chuck the book and say, it's a lousy, absolutely terrible story? Well, maybe something. <laughs> all right, all right. It, it's, an Im, it's an imperfect example, but I hope it's, it's kind of illustrating a point. I hope it's kind of illustrating a point. And what we're, we're not trying, now please hear me, and I, I want to say this. I, wanna, I don't care if I say this a million times. What I'm not saying is, like, God is going to rig it so that everything bad that happened is good. No, evil is wrong. Matthew 13 tells us an enemy has done this. This is not the work of God. But there's a big difference uh, when, in Romans 8 when it, says, when it says that God works all things together for good. There's a big difference between working things together for good and all things being good. There's a big difference. And God can take even the worst of tragedies and through them he can work some sort of a glorious finish that's beyond our expectation. Which is a cool thing. What you, we can't do... I think, is falsely evaluate the author halfway through the story. Is to falsely evaluate the author halfway through. What? If you read your Bible, you already know the end. Yeah. So living it out in life, you're right, you should just be done, but right. you already know that's the whole story. Yeah. And I think that's, the, that's a beautiful point. Now, now hopefully, probably not a lot of this has necessarily felt super warm and fuzzy. Um, but we're going to transition here for a moment. Not that the point is to feel warm and fuzzy, but I think the Bible gives us... I haven't even touched on the greatest, on the greatest uh, evidence for the goodness of God despite suffering yet, which we are going to spend the rest of the time looking at. Let's say that these three people are sitting in a waiting room, which they are. Let's say that they're waiting to see a dentist, right? Let's say that this person has a pain value of two. How much? Two, this person has a pain value of five. How much? And this person has a pain value of one. All right? So we have what? Two, five, one. If we add that all together, what do we get? Eight. How many people in this room are experiencing a pain value of eight? Not one of them. They're experiencing their portion of it. And they are, in a sense, incapable, probably, of experiencing, though they might, you know, feel for each other a little bit, not one of the people in this room is experiencing a pain value of eight. What if there is someone who is capable of experiencing the cumulative sum of all the pain? Right? I think the closest thing that you can come to, you know, I, in a sense, can only ever bear the, the pain that I will experience in my life. But probably the closest thing I'm guessing I could ever come to to maybe bearing somebody else's pain would be someday if and when I have kids, right? From a Christian viewpoint, 
if God is the father of all humanity, if he is the origin of all humanity who is made in his image, then that would, I think, in a unique way, make him capable of experiencing the pain of all people. Because I think sometimes in this, this issue of the problem of pain that we forget that God himself is suffering in the midst of this. Genesis 3.15, the very first prophecy in the entire Bible. God promises to put enmity between, uh, between the serpent and the woman, and he promises that the full brunt of sin and death would come down on himself. Genesis 3.21, we're given a second uh, kind of a typology prophecy where God clothes Adam and Eve with garments from an animal, an animal that had to die to cover the, had to cover the wicked. Exodus 3, God visits Moses. Exodus 3, 7, he visits Moses in a burning bush and he makes the point very clear. I have seen the afflictions of my people. I have felt their sufferings. If you were to go over to Jeremiah 3, the very beginning, uh, uh, towards the middle of it, you'd find that God is in anguish over rebellious Israel the same way that a loving husband would be in anguish over a wife who's leaving him. If you go to Hosea 11, what you find God doing is essentially saying, I taught Israel how to walk, and you think of the, I took them by the hands. You think of a parent walking with their child like this, you know what I mean? Like when they're first learning to walk. And in the kind of the culmination of, of, of Hosea 11, when God basically cries out, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? My heart recoils within me. But you fast forward even more, and we find the story of Emmanuel. God becomes one of us. What would be the greatest evidence that God doesn't care if he stayed distant? What would be the greatest evidence that regardless of however hard it might be, he does understand and he does care if he put himself right in the middle of it? And so Jesus is born into a disreputable situation, into a bad home, into a bad community, where his mother is suspected of a crime, uh, a, a religious crime of the day, um, certainly. Uh, he grows up in a community probably where he's teased about his birth. In a, in a place in the world where people are known by the names of their fathers, and your last name is your father's name, Jesus is, Joseph, uh, Jesus, is Jesus, son of Mary, um, which is a dishonorable thing. He's rejected by his family. He's rejected by the Jewish leaders. We see him, we see him in Matthew, I believe it's 25, hanging on the brow of the hill overlooking the temple and weeping, huge sobbing tears over a nation of people who he has completely extended himself for and given his life for and is about to give his life for who are going to completely reject him. We find him in the Garden of Gethsemane about to be abandoned by all his followers. We find him praying. We find him saying, Father, if it would be your will, let this cup pass. Does the cup pass from him? Does the cup pass from him? No, it doesn't. We find Jesus understanding what it's like to feel like you're on the receiving end of unanswered prayer. You ever find yourself in that situation before? God himself knows what it's like to feel like his prayer goes unanswered. In that moment, in his human experience there. And then finally we find him on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God himself knows the feeling, the human feeling of feeling utterly cut off from God. So what's the point? Whatever noble reasons God has for permitting certain suffering, whatever reasons he might have for permitting certain suffering. 
And we might not know what those reasons are, but we know what the reason cannot be. It can't be because he doesn't love us. It can't be because he isn't good. Does that make sense? The answer of the cross itself, I think, is the greatest answer in the issue of of the, the sovereignty and goodness of God and yet the existence of evil, the fact that God himself has entered into the evil. And here's the great part. As we talked about yesterday, if you weren't here, you'll have to buy that. You'll have to buy the recording of it. You'll have to ask somebody who has the little chart about the resurrection. If you were here yesterday, we have great and beautiful reasons to believe uh, the resurrection. Jesus not only died and entered into suffering, but he made a guaranteed eventual end to human suffering. And that's a beautiful and great thing. <clears throat> Question, don't we suffer to be refined? <laughs> and I, and I, think, I think we need to be, I think in some ways we need to be sensitive to that to people who are suffering greatly. Um, but, I, but the Bible does teach, you know, 2 Corinthians 4. If you were to read Romans 5, you find all throughout the New Testament the idea that um, Despite the unpleasantness of the suffering, there are greater purposes that God is capable of and is working throughout. And I think one of the greatest examples of that is in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And if you're actually to look up what the original word blessed mean, it actually almost seems to say happy or fortunate. And I don't know what that means in the here and now. <laughs> you know, fortunate are those who mourn. Because in some sort of way, they are going to, there is some sort of, and I don't even want to call it a payoff because that sounds too uh, draconian and monetary, but, but uh, not, not a payoff, but in some sort of a way, this ends in a way that is even, God was able to bring something even better because of that experience. Uh, and I think that's, that's a very important point to make. So, Suffering is difficult, but we've seen, at least logically, that it does not necessarily make a case for God's non-existence. Have we seen that? Has that been clear? Though suffering is present, it does not logically make a case that God doesn't exist. Uh, a naturalist worldview equally has a problem of evil. Uh, evil doesn't go away just if I was to all of a sudden disbelieve in God. It's still going to be real. It's still going to be present. It's still a thing. Uh, the only thing that I've lost is I've lost my ability to question why it might even ever happen because, well, that's just what happens. Um, and also, then you have to deal with how is their objective good. If I think there's evil, if I think there's suffering, how have I, uh, what is my objective criteria through which I've made the distinction between the two? Um, and then also, uh, only a theistic worldview, a belief uh, that there is a creator, an ultimate creator God, um, only a theistic worldview can affirm that there is something wrong about pain and suffering. And that's something that resonates deeply, I think, inside of all people. Interestingly enough, even these atheist quotes that I had up here, uh, they're recoiling against what they see as that's just wrong, right? But only a theistic worldview can affirm that there is something wrong about it. Not just not preferential, but actually wrong about it. And then finally, God has suffered. And I think since God has suffered, this is a really key point for the Christian. You see, for, if, um, for the naturalist, um, what, in a sense, what is safe is what is known. And, and to live uh, with, with an unknown of the cosmos where anything could maybe happen at any time, I think is, has a degree of fear in it. But I think for the Christian, this is, a, I think, a key point. The unknown is safe. It might not be pleasant. It might be hard. 
But I can at least trust that ultimately there is a God who is sovereign and who is in control of this whole thing. And so even though it might not be the greatest experience in the moment, the unknown is ultimately safe. Um, And then finally, hey, joy is at the end of the story. It all ends. Okay. (laughs) That's today's presentation. We are done a little bit early. I hope these points have been clear. I hope that maybe you feel um, better equipped. You know, I, I, this is for us. Is this is for us too to grow? But but I hope that this is something that's helpful for you as you converse with somebody um, within the faith to give them hope, or somebody without the faith to to maybe um, challenge their thinking uh, in a loving and a redemptive way where you are seeking to work with them and maybe try to lead them to consideration that, hey, maybe this isn't maybe this actually is something that I need to think about. All right, we have a little bit of time. Any discussion or questions? And I, I can make no promises on my ability to... Huh? Um, I just want to recommend a book I recently read called Trusting God okay. by Jerry Bridges that plays into this. I mean, it's a little different... But knowing who God is can help us to believe that the end turns out right. Okay. So learning to trust God. Trusting God. Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges. Okay. So book recommendation. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much. What? Okay. Not an Adventist. Okay. Not an Adventist book, but a helpful, edifying book. Okay. Yes, Tom. Just to refresh our friend over here's question that she asked earlier. Okay. Yeah. So why? The question essentially was, why didn't God quarantine the devil when he rebelled? Okay. And prevent temptation for the rest of us. Okay. Right. I'm assuming that was. She looks like she's a little bit. I'm sorry. I think that was the question that I asked. Right. Why didn't God quarantine the devil and prevent other people from being tempted? Put us on a better place. Yeah. Um, I I think without wanting to, I think without wanting to. Dumb it down to a silly example. I'm a teacher. I'm a high school teacher, I think, in terms of examples on a regular basis. Um, I would see it akin to if somebody questioned me or my goodness or my ability to do something, my locking them away so they couldn't talk to other people. Uh, Do you something something you wanted to add to that? So I think one thing to keep in mind is that there is a a political rebellion that's happening in the universe. Absolutely, yes. And so think about this. The angels want to have good neighbors, right? (laughs) <laughs> so, um, in a sense, everybody has to be vetted. Are you trustworthy or are you not? So God has to allow a test to see if we're trustworthy. Okay. Everybody does. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely a, it's definitely a matter of it's a matter of allegiance. It's a matter once again of the will. And um, am I really be, is God really providing uh, freedom if He quarantines an option? <clears throat> yes. Point out because I just heard somebody saying it's all a test. Um, I'm real careful with that because okay. I think who's being tested and who's testing. We have to be careful with what we're saying because it's not really God testing us. It's more us needing to test everything out and the devil testing God. Okay. Because he's the one that's saying that God is this person that's just creating and forcing and everything, and we need to understand that God's not that kind of person. So. The testing isn't God testing us. God already knows us. It's us testing ourselves and also testing the truths. 
I think something that can be said in that is that we are, in a sense, testing this whole great controversy experience is not just an external affair, but it's an internal affair in our hearts. And we are testing, in a sense, the claim of Lucifer against God, uh, against what we know and can see and trust to be true of God from what he says. But I think at the same time, you know, maybe to stretch that idea a little bit or to push back a little bit, I think the Bible does clearly teach that, um, you know, we're told that certain amount of trials sometimes are permitted in our life for the purpose of testing. Uh, but I think that God's intention in ever allowing any amount of evil uh, is never for the end result of evil. It's always for the end result of some redemptive, uh, some redemptive purpose. <clears throat> and um, to reference the book, uh, Tim Keller, that you referenced, um, the book on suffering, is that he makes the point, if we're getting to like a practical aspect, that different things are comforting for different, different people. Okay. If, if we go through an experience and we have say that this is how I was comforted in my suffering, that might work for someone else, that, that person might be offended by what worked for you. Right. So we need to be sensitive to everybody's suffering and their own personal experience in that. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, Isaiah. So one of my biggest um, troubles with, with faith is the experience of, we talk about sin begotting suffering, but it seems that maybe obedience, even more so, begot suffering. You know, if God is love and, and, and we, we know that you've presented that to us, if God is love and we try to partake in his love, we end up suffering more. Why doesn't God protect his followers from suffering if sin is what causes it? I think an initial answer is that God's uh, purpose is ultimately, and I, I probably need to qualify this a little bit, but I think God's purpose is to ultimately save us from sin and not temporarily save us from discomfort. And, and that, I, think that's a hard, I think that's a hard reality. Sometimes it's difficult to live, but I think it's more difficult to face the other uh, end of that. And did you want to add something, Sarah? Yeah. Um, Psalm 119.43 says, I walk, at, I walk at liberty before I seek your precepts. It's the law of God that sets us free for peace and love and joy. And as a nurse, I work in an intensive care unit in an area where we get a lot of drug overdoses. And most of the people that I see in there are there because of choices that they have made that they could have avoided had they followed the law and restrain themselves a little bit for the greater good they have rules to follow. And I also think that it would become a weird monetary exchange if, well, I'm going to obey you and therefore you're going to be good to me. Like, I don't really like you. I just don't want to be uncomfortable. Um, I think the New Testament, I think the New Testament makes the example um, the power that we receive from the Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus living in us, makes uh, time and again the example that God's intention is not to rapture us away from, uh, from suffering, but actually to through his strength to actually through his strength to conquer the evil and to live with victory and faith and hope. Because, you know, Jesus even says uh, in this life, he says, um, <clears throat> in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And I think once again, it still goes back to um, the idea that God is doing 
a bigger work than what this moment looks like. God is doing a bigger work in the long, in the long uh, scheme of things than what this day, this month looks like, this year looks like. You want to add something, yeah, Levi? And your hand was up as well. Um, one point, and then just on that question, some passages, scripture. Um, but just something to think about as far as what God is trying to accomplish in the picture is basically to move his creation beyond the issue that was raised with Lucifer, right? And so in that sense, it makes it makes a lot of sense that we would have to go through difficult things as believers because initially Lucifer saw things that didn't seem right to him. He thought could be done better, and he chose not to trust God, and that caused all this. If God is going to have people that are restored back to, you know, full trust in him, we in a way have to go through things that don't seem to make sense to us and show that we're still going to trust God because that's where that's exactly where Lucifer initially fell. Um, and I was just going to recommend for that question, for anybody who thinks about that, so the thing, I think, what's your name? Isaiah. Isaiah. I thought about it. All of us at some point have to wrestle with that idea. Um, but the psalmist did too. And two psalms that are specifically about that are Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 are both exactly on that question. Okay. Thanks for the input. I just want to say something about Travis, you mentioned that giving those to us and having faith in him and reminding us ourselves that my way is not God's way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mrs. Matusik, your hand was up a moment well, ago. Well, I was just going to say that for me, one of God's greatest gifts is the gift of peace. That peace okay. that passes all understanding. You know, sometimes we worry about the time at the end. It's going to be so hard. Could we? Can we stand it? Can we do this? But if you have that peace, then it conquers everything. No matter what we're going through at any stage in our life, if we're anxious, if we're upset, if we're sorrowed, if if you can have that peace that God gives you, you can sail through it. And I'm not saying it will be easy, but right. that peace, it, it is above our understanding. We right. don't understand it until we experience it, and then we understand what that kind of peace is. And sometimes it feels contrary to our understanding of peace, yes. too. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I think, once again, you know, you're still, you're still faced with the, with the realities of life, whether you choose belief in an, in an all-powerful God, or whether you choose not belief in an all-powerful God, you know, you're still, there are still those realities to face, but it's a good question. And when those trials come, <clears throat> I think that we all do this. When you have a trial, it either brings you closer to God, or mm -hmm. it turns you away. Sure. And that's, again, goes back to our choice. Yeah. And if some suffering is, if some suffering in a way that we don't understand is helpful in a redemptive process, then maybe it's like somebody tackling you out of the way of a bus. If you don't see the bus, you don't know why they're tackling you, and you're like, why are you tackling me? That hurts. But if you under... <clears throat> yeah. We are uh, basically at time. Uh, we can... Let's close with a word of prayer. And uh... <clears throat> Father God, thank you that, that you have given us enough. Enough to believe... Enough to know, enough to have confidence in your word, 
And you've given us more than enough in giving us your Son and in giving us the presence of your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to equip us for all righteousness, Lord. And for those in this room, Lord, who are currently going through suffering, those who have, for those who will, and that's all of us at some point, Lord, give us the hope to understand that you are the God in the midst of suffering and that um, you are transcendent and that you are great and that you eventually have a slam-bang finish for this whole story. And may we put our confidence in that. Thank you, Jesus. May you bless all my friends today and throughout the rest of camp meeting as we seek you more and more each day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.